We're going to spend a few minutes tonight in the Word. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go ahead and take those and turn them back to the book of Matthew. We've been here the last few Wednesday evenings. This evening, we want to continue the study through the Gospels we've been doing as I've been reading through them and being reminded of a number of truths as I've been rereading Matthew of late. Uh, the past several weeks, we've been wrestling with truths communicated through patterns that we found in the opening chapters of Matthew. And tonight, what I want to do is, is turn to this book again to consider for a few minutes one of the most uh, abused verses in all of Scripture. I mean, all of us, I'm sure, are at least somewhat familiar with abuses of the words found in the text I'm asking you to turn to in Matthew chapter 7. But I want you to listen again to the opening words of the chapter. We find in this first paragraph these words from our Lord. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn again to attack you. As I mentioned, there are far too many people in our day who wrongly apply this passage. I would suggest it's probably because there are far too many of us who wrongly understand the passage. We, we don't really think through what's being talked about here. I think the essence of what often is said from this passage, an implication at least by many, is this, that our Lord was teaching that all judgment at all times about all things and for all reasons is wrong. You never judge anything at any time for any reason. It's all forbidden by Jesus. But I would argue that's not what he's saying. In fact, I think the passage itself makes plain that's not what he's, he's saying. Maybe we could get a little bit more specific as to maybe why our hearts and minds in the modern day so often go there. And I think it's because we live in a day and a time when the worst sin a person could commit is to suggest that someone else has done something wrong. Seems like the worst thing you can ever commit is to say that someone has done something wrong. It doesn't take much to get canceled, we say in our day. And often it's when you actually make a judgment call, a principled statement about anything. Commentator James Montgomery Boyce once noted the, the tendency in humanity. He wrote about it in his commentary on this passage. Boyce said this, whenever Christians say that something is either right or wrong, or whenever they speak out against immoral or destructive behavior in another person, they are frequently told that they, have, uh, that they are not to judge Meaning that any behavior is right and that any attempt to deny that it is right is itself wrong. In fact, in our postmodern environment, the only acknowledged evil is claiming that someone else is mistaken. 
Just think about that. And Boyce wrote some time ago. This isn't a recent statement as far as in the last decade or so. We're talking some time ago. In light of this, we have to ask ourselves some questions, I think. I mean, this anything goes spirit voice is talking about. Is this anything goes spirit of the age what our Lord was talking about in this text? Judge not, right? I mean, it sounds very convenient to grab language like that and to make the argument voice is saying the culture wants to make, right? Don't make any judgments. In other words, do our Lord's words actually forbid us from calling sin, sin? Is that what it means to judge not? Or could we come to a better conclusion? Is there another, a better way to understand what's going on in this text? Of Scripture. I think the question we have to ask about the passage is this. What was Jesus actually talking about when he said what he did here? What was he talking about? What did he mean? And to answer the question, what we want to do is wrestle with three big ideas. We won't have time for them all tonight. But I'll give you the three big ideas. My goal is to get, get through one of them tonight. And then, Lord willing, next week... Come back and look at two more of them from the passage, okay? So three big ideas in this text. The first one is that our Lord forbids judgmentalism, not judgment. Our Lord forbids judgmentalism, not judgment. Secondly, our Lord requires humility among brethren. The third thing I think we can argue from this text is that our Lord instructs discernment in ministry. All three of these things are found in this paragraph. And so we want to just give some thought to those tonight before we, or at least the first of these tonight before we go to prayer this evening. So we're going to consider this thought that our Lord forbids judgmentalism, not, not judgment. Look again at verses one and two. I think this is where we find this idea. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, the word judge has what scholars might refer to as a, as a wide semantic range, meaning the word itself can be used in a number of ways, and it can have broad, broad understanding and, and meaning and usage in this day. The word can have a variety of meanings based upon its context, really, we might understand it. Uh, for instance, it can mean uh, to judge as in a court of law. It can mean, this word can mean to condemn as in when one is given over to a hypercritical, disapproving, judgmental spirit. The word can mean to avenge, to avenge as in when one self-righteously decides to be jury, judge, and executioner, right? It can also mean to discern, as if when one assesses and analyzes and evaluates and determines some things based upon that assessment. So it can mean a court, it can mean condemnation, as in a judgmental spirit, it can mean to avenge, to actually act upon it with violence at times, what I've decided and what I've seen. It can also mean discernment. As you find this word used in Scripture, you'll find a wide semantic range. And so we have to ask ourselves a question. In cases like these, when we find a word with that kind of breadth of meaning, 
How does a faithful student of Scripture come to understand what's being addressed? What we would say is we have to look at the word in its particular context. We've got to wrestle with what's being said around it in order for us to make sense of what is it, me- what is, it is meant here in this particular passage. And I would argue that an observation of this context would teach us that very quickly we can rule out the idea that Jesus is forbidding at least a couple of types of these kind of judgments, if you understand the way it's used in Scripture. The first one I would say is this, he cannot be forbidding judgment in a court of law. You study the Scriptures and you find very quickly that the Apostle Peter commands God's people to be submissive to governmental authorities, which would include emperors or governors or judges, we might say courts, that punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. The language is plain in Peter's first epistle. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, what does he say? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to do what? To punish those who do evil. And to praise those who do good. Now we could keep studying the scripture. We won't take the time tonight to chase all the places that you find this kind of of language. Even Christ's own submission before courts. Paul's own submission before, before judges over him. But friends, to understand this, Peter would not command submission to such an institution as a court or a ruler who would have this kind of judgment if Christ had already forbidden such thing to take place. Peter would not be denying Christ's own teaching. If Christ says, judge not, that means courts are outlawed. In fact, I think it was Tolstoy, the Russian author, once argued that God forbids every kind of judgment, including courts. The courts are outlawed by God. That's a wrong conclusion. It's a wrong conclusion. Peter is not forbidding something or or, or commanding something that Jesus has already forbidden. That's not how it works. I think it should be pretty clear to us pretty quickly, and we could chase it further, we won't tonight, that Jesus was not forbidding the judgment that happens in a court of law. It's not what he's doing. Secondly, I would say this, that he can't be forbidding if we're wrestling with what it means to judge. Judgment in the sense of exercising discernment. Exercising discernment. You see, in this passage, in this same passage that we're looking at tonight, the, and really the passages that follow, Jesus commands his followers to exercise discernment in a variety of ways. I mean, it's right here in the context. I mean, he requires in verses 3 to 5 his servants to be aware of and to take action concerning the specks and the logs that they notice in one another's eyes and in their own. To actually be so aware of and able to assess based on Scripture that we would know when something doesn't belong, in my own eye or in somebody else's eye, that we would actually discern based on Scripture, hey, this this shouldn't be in your life, this shouldn't be in mine. He's commanding discernment in the very passage that he forbids a certain kind of judgment. He instructs in verse 6 the followers to make determinations about how they interact with and minister to those who are deemed or discerned to be dogs and pigs. 
I mean, that's the kind of language that you and I would think, that sounds like judgmentalism to us. I mean, we, we hear that, but culturally, there, there's, there's, there's some things to be understood here. But he's literally saying there are certain people that you make a discernment about and you just go, it's not worth it. And I won't waste the resources given to me by God to even go down that road with certain people. That's discernment. He requires right here in the same passage. In verses 12 to 14, same text, he calls his followers to exercise discernment about the spiritual gate that they will enter, the spiritual way that they will walk, because one's going to lead them to life and the other's going to lead them to destruction. And he says, discern which path you, you walk on and make sure you're on the right one. In verse 15, he warns them to beware of false prophets Such a warning requires them to discern between real sheep and wolves dressed as sheep. you got to know the difference. And he says discern the difference between sheep, true sheep, and, and, and those that are just dressed up like them. That actually have fangs and that tear and claw and destroy. Discern the difference, he tells his own. In verse 16, he instructs them to recognize false teachers by paying careful attention to the fruits that are being produced in their lives. Look closely and be discerning because you'll know who's true and who's false by what you see in them. That's discernment. Again and again and again, in just this passage, he commands discernment. He can't be forbidding it in verse 1 and 2 if he's going to spend the rest of the chapter commanding it. That's not what he's doing here. And friends, this this could go on all day. I mean, we just keep working through. We're going to find discernment is commanded everywhere in Scripture. It's all over the place. The Bible is absolutely full of texts that command us as the people of God to exercise discernment and to make judgments about all kinds of temporal and eternally significant matters. Be wise and careful and cautious and discerning. Don't be fools, but be wise. It's everywhere. This is commanded by God. Clearly, Jesus is not forbidding his people from being discerning. Rather, the scriptures consistently insist upon that. And if that's what we can rule out, then we are left with only another possibility here in the meaning, right, of what he's forbidding. Clearly, our Lord was not forbidding the first two, but he was forbidding a kind of condemning, avenging spirit That passes judgment on others as if it were in the place of God. This is the kind of judgment he is actually addressing. Friends, you see, this kind of judgmentalism, which is referred to by some scholars as, there's a word we don't use a lot, censoriousness. You hear censor in there. Censoriousness is forbidden throughout the rest of the New Testament. We could, we, could, we could chase this. We don't have a lot of time. Let me give you a couple of passages where we find this kind of language used elsewhere. Now, Romans chapter 14, verse 4, and then down in verses 10 through 12, we read this in Romans 14. Who are you, the writer says, to pass judgment on the servant of another? 
It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. He repeats the kind of question again in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as long as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. What's the idea here? We, We don't. give ultimate account to each other. But when we violate Jesus' command, judge not, what we're saying is, you answer to me. Or you're demanding that I answer to you when Jesus says, no, we all answer to God. He's our judge. James picks up the same idea as Paul in Romans And he warns his readers with very similar language. James chapter 4, he says this to us all. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The the one who speaks against uh, a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now notice verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Don't miss the point of the passages, friends. We We could go to others. We won't tonight. But the writers are saying this to us. There is only one God who is lawgiver and judge. Only one. The bumper sticker I've told you about before applies here. There's there's just one God, and you're not him. (laughs) I'm not him. There's only one God who's the lawgiver and the judge. Every knee will bow to him. Every mouth will confess to him. Every person will be judged by him. I want to make sure that I catch and that you catch the implication then of all of this. We're thinking through what's in the scriptures. When we decide, when I decide, and when you decide to sit in judgment on our brethren as though our own standard is as important as or even more important than God's standard for them. We actually put ourselves in the place God himself alone sits on the throne as the sovereign ruler and judge of all. Now, in common terms, I think we would recognize such language or such an attitude as Blasphemy, wouldn't we? We're saying that everyone else answers to us, not to God. 
Now, I want you to see tonight how, how what we've just talked about, because we've chased a few thoughts through other scriptures. I just want you to see tonight briefly how this idea can be seen right in the language of the text from Matthew chapter 7. L listen again to what we read here in verses 1 and 2 of our text. We see this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And twice in the passage, Jesus refers to a coming day of judgment. Do you see it there? Not the day on which you determine people answer to you, the day on which you will answer to another. I will answer to another. That you be not judged, and you will be judged, he says. It's interesting that Jesus refers to, to people being judged by the standard that they use for others. Sobering, isn't it? There was actually a Jewish maxim in Jesus' day that went something like this. It, it would say in Jesus' day, by the measure by which a man meets, it is measured to him. And in that day, the common practice in the market is that the sellers would measure out to others the appropriate portions of what they were purchasing. And so the maxim was being used to challenge or to chide people and to call them to use true, right, and objective standards for their measurements. I think we've all probably seen the old Norman Rockwell, right? Where the butcher is on the back side of the scale, got his finger on this side, he's pushing down, and the little sweet old lady there has got her finger on the other side of the scale pushing up, right? That's what it's talking about. The measure you use will be used on you. The measure I use, used on me. And so they would say this to one another in the marketplace to remind, make sure what, when you measure, you measure truly. Notice they didn't tell people, don't measure. What they were saying to each other is, when you measure, measure truly. Measure honestly. Measure objectively. Don't be judgmental, but judge righteous judgment, to use the scripture's language. Righteous judgment. You see, one might actually say that what people were doing in that day was reminding people to use the same standard for others that they would be happy to have used on themselves. Use the same measurement. And in our text then, Jesus seems to be using a common phrase known among the people to challenge their thinking about the standard that they use when they think about and interact with and judge those around them. Jesus has taken that same kind of language that would have been common to the people around him and said, hey, let me tell you what that actually looks like, what that actually means. So don't miss this, friends. The Bible is clear about the fact that God 
is the righteous judge who will ultimately judge us all. We said that. Let me just remind you how the scriptures just repeat it. I thought of several texts we could run to, many more than I have time to show you, but but familiar texts. We we love the beginning of Psalm 96 because it calls us to to, to the ministry of the nations, but it's interesting how Psalm 96 ends, and it's a reminder of why we go to the nations and talk to them about our God. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. And why does He come? He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Do you understand that what Jesus is calling us to when he says not judgmentalism, but true righteous judgment, he is calling us to a God-likeness, a godliness in our handling of one another. It's not saying no judgment, he's saying righteous judgment. True, honest standard. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, we find Paul instructing young Timothy concerning ministry. And what does he say there? He says, I am ready. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul's saying, I'm at the end of my ministry. My, my, my life is coming to the end. I've done what I've been given to do. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course, uh, my, my, finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I think it's interesting that Paul, coming to the end of his life, when he thought of the Lord, and he wrote of the Lord, did so with such objectivity. The Lord will be my judge. But I'm not fearful of him. Because he is a righteous judge who has promised to reward. And Paul says, I know he's going to reward me and everyone who loves his appearing. But notice he makes plain that the Lord is the righteous judge. We saw this earlier in James chapter 4, but in verse 12, we saw the language so plainly that there is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. The text of Scripture is clear, friends. The Bible is absolutely clear about all this. God is the only righteous judge who will ultimately judge all of us. But I want you to think about this. Isn't it amazing how often we tend to be harsher and stricter than God in our dealings with other people? I don't don't say that lightly. I don't say that flippantly. I say that with the sting of conviction I feel. How often are we harsher and stricter than God? 
So let me ask you, have you stopped to consider how easily, how often, how quickly our hearts think and act and speak like the Pharisees of Jesus' day? Friends, we can't afford to forget that Jesus was, was speaking into a culture. Jesus himself, as he so, said these words in our text, he was speaking into a culture that was influenced and led by a bunch of self-righteous Pharisees. And other religious leaders like them. Because of these men who led in that day, Jesus warned his followers with words like these. Just listen to other words from Jesus. Matthew 23, verse 2. What did he say? The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. I mean, they've been handed this, this position of righteousness. They're, they're holders and keepers of the law. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And here's the problem. What Jesus was addressing is that the Pharisees used one standard for others and a different one for themselves. Got one standard for everybody else, a different standard for me. And this is the very thing that our Lord is correcting in our text for tonight. This is what he's dealing with in Matthew 7, 1 and 2. When he says, judge not, he's forbidding a judgmentalism that sits on the throne of God in my own mind and demands that everyone around me answer to me. Vengeance is mine, I think. And the scriptures are plain. Vengeance belongs to the Lord alone. In fact, as we return to the passage next time, Lord willing, next Wednesday night, we'll come back to the text. We'll keep, we'll keep working through the paragraph that's here. But, but next time, I think all of this will be brought into, into sharper focus for us as we, as we zero in a little bit more on what's found in the rest of his words here. But tonight, what I want to do is this. I want us to pray as those who understand that we are accountable to God and in need of his grace ourselves. There is one lawgiver and judge and I answer to him you answer to him we need his grace we need his grace and then let's also pray as those who would confess that we need to extend the same kind of grace to others as God has extended to us. It's a whole lot easier to sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, than it is to give grace to other wretches. Isn't it? I find that to be true. So much easier to 
relish the grace I've received than to give grace to others who need it as well? But that is what Jesus is talking about here. So let's pray as those who understand our own accountability and need. And pray as those who need to become dispensers, extenders of grace to others as well. And to that end, we want to pray tonight. All right.